Hello, you're listening to Alfie Moore's podcast with me, Alfie Moore. Each week on this podcast, I'll be discussing policing matters with a special guest and lifting the lid on the police force and telling you what really goes on behind closed doors. As always, I'll be joined by Will, the producer. Hello, Will. Hi, Alfie. And today my guest is Peter Kirkham. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon. Now, Peter spent over 20 years in the Metropolitan Police Service working in the CID at every rank up to Detective Chief Inspector. He was a senior investigating officer on the Serious Crime Directorate, which was responsible for investigating murder, serial rape and other serious crimes. So, so you qualified as a DC. Presumably that meant a detective course? Detective constable. Yeah, you, you yeah. had to go on some sort of yeah, went resident, on the, went resident on, went, course? Yeah, went on the CRD course at Hendon, five or six weeks or whatever. Lots of crime, so. lots of drinking. Yeah. Was, was that the yeah. culture back yeah. then in CID? Oh, drinking was the culture, for sure. Yeah. And was there a CID pub back then? That... There were CID pubs. I mean, the one at, at, at Hammersmith was CID and Uniform. It was right next door. Uh, there were other pubs. I've got their own pubs. That one's Uniform. Yeah. That one's Did CID. everyone know that, that they were the... Yeah, I mean, probably the most most entertaining story about that is Fulham, and there were a number of pubs that the CID went in. They went in to maintain a presence, uh, because Fulham was a bit... Is what they said. (laughs) Well, yes and no, but Fulham was a bit villainous in those days. There were families that thought of themselves as, like, mini-craze and whatever. You know, we had a hand grenade thrown through a pub in the bottom end of of Fulham when I was there. Who who was the target for the... uh, Just the other gang. And oh, right. it, this, was, was a pub, this was a pub that one gang frequented, right. and, and these weren't two-bit little street gangs that stab each other for straying across postcode boundaries. These were proper armed robbery type, drug importation type crime gangs, um, gangsters in, in the Cray model, um, just not very good. And this particular pub was where one of them, one of the families, um, drank, and we knew of this feud that was going, going on. And lo and behold, one late turn, uh, there's a hand grenade thrown through the pub, the, through the window of the pub. Uh, fortunately, it was fairly empty at the time. Someone, those that were in the bar, realised what it was. So it, so it went off. The it, it went off, but it didn't take anybody out. Um, but it went off. Yeah. The best one was on the S bend of, of New Kings Road. Um, there was a pub. I think it was called the Lord Palmerston. I might be mis- misremembering that. But it was a big pub on the corner, and it had a, a, a central U-shaped bar. So there were three sides to this bar, and obviously in the olden days it used to have partitions, but they'd all gone. So it was an open-plan U-shaped bar with this pub in the middle, a bar in the middle. And the CID lived on this side, and the Fulham crime family lived on that side. <laughs> and it was truce territory. And, it, you know, <laughs> and so, wow. so that, you know, I mean, you look back on the craze, and, and, and that was sort of, uh, for the time, there was... Lots of groups of, of families sure. like the craze. For sure. Families like, uh, sorry, areas like Fulham and Hammersmith and Paddington and, and, and Kentish Town, as well as your Hackneys and your Mile Ends and, and, and then all the way around. This sort of semi-inner loop, not the tourist heart of London, not the green and leafy suburbs, but the semi-inner sort of range of boroughs, they all had their families. I, I did, a, did a piece for... Um, a documentary about the Adams families, uh, Adams family in Islington recently. And it made me realise that that was sort of the end of that era of the Craze and the Richardsons and that type of very hands-on 
very controlling, very violent local gangs. Um, I don't think we'll see them again. They've gone. What they've been replaced with is a very different type of gang, equally violent, but in a different sort of way. Um, and it, it, it's quite interesting to compare and contrast the two. I mean, in the case of the Adamses, they were linked to a, a literally a shootout in the street with a gang that they didn't get on with in, so, in Islington. So there was a lot of infighting gang on gang. There was. And, and, and what was the, the police uh, perspective on that? Were, did they get a full investigation? Were, were, we, were we really interested in solving that or were we happy for them to take each other out? Local police got involved in stuff if it happened in your area. We didn't tend to proactively go after them because we knew they were doing stuff elsewhere. So the local police focus, and I was local police at the time, was very much picking up the pieces of anything that happened. So locally. the crime people were not in your own backyard type thing? You, you know, no, you, they, you, no, they weren't. You do they, your villainy out, out, out of town and then you go yeah, to your local pub and yeah. you're all right. And, and it was only the squabbles that usually came to, to light in one place or the other. Um, but the yard had gang units, right. various titles. Uh, the flying squad would look, after, look at them if they were involved in armed robbery. They dealt with bank robberies and stuff. Uh, the drug squad would maybe be involved in looking at them if they were involved in drugs. Um, and, and sometimes there'd be a special unit put together if they started getting a bit too big. Did we have different levels of criminals now? Because now we've got sort of level one, level two, different distinctions. Yeah, uh, we, we did. We never really formalised it. But there was your very local, almost opportunist criminals that operated at a low level. Right. Then there were the ones that wanted to get in something bigger but weren't particularly um, competent at it. Uh, and were quite easy to catch and quite often made mistakes. Unfortunately, they quite often hurt people as well because of their incompetence. And then there were what I'd describe as the professional criminals who didn't want to get caught and who didn't want to hurt anybody, but they were looking for bigger prizes. Um, and quite often it would be either aggravated burglary uh, or more likely armed robbery. And um, there were the flying the squad were looking at that. Yeah, and then, of course, there was the regional crime squads as well at a regional level that were looking at. So one way or another, these crime families were being looked at by somebody once they got to that sort of level. Because you, you then moved, didn't you, uh, into the... How long into your career did you move to before you went to the flying squad? Yeah, well, well, after a couple of years at Fulham, I got promoted sergeant, went to uniform, be a uniform sergeant at Chiswick, at Chiswick and Brentford, uh, which was the very next division across from Hammersmith, where I'd been. Uh, but it was like brain death. It, it was bizarre. It wasn't that it just slowly got quieter as you went further into Chiswick. It was like Hammersmith was pretty busy up to the junction of the Goldort Road, and then the other side of the Goldort Road, it was like dead. It was a strange place. And that strange place. Didn't suit you? Steady? Well, I, I was there to do interchange, and Pace had just come in, so I was a Pace custody officer, and I felt as a CID officer I needed to understand Pace, and I needed to so, understand so, Pace So Pace was officer. a Police and Criminal Evidence Act, 1984. 1984. Massive change. Huge change. Absolutely. In, in how we did business. Total change. Took a lot of powers away from us and gave a lot of rights to the people. And it tidied country. things up that needed tidying up, to be frank. Um, it was hard to live through. It made life very difficult in some ways. It made life easier in some ways. So just an example, um, pre-pace, uh, no tapes, recordings. No, you'd interview the suspects. Notes. Yeah, and then 
go to the pub and make your notes up about what you can remember about what was said. Well, I, I, you know, I, I remember a story about an interview where uh, this old DS takes a, 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 a sitting in the interview room. The DC brings the new DC brings the prisoner in to be interviewed. And, you know, he's just getting his pen out and whatever. And the, the old DS is reading The Sun or something when he comes in. And he sort of folds the paper up, tosses it across to the suspect. And the suspect looks at it and goes, what's that for? He says, something to read while we do your interview, mate. <laughs> and, you know, those days very rapidly went. Yeah. So, 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 and, so, and it's no bad thing to so see them pace, gone. So Pace changed all that. And it we did. had to be much more professional overnight. Yes. Tape recorded interviews and uh, everything limits on detention that was the big one 24 hours and, and that had that had a major impact and it, it also had a major impact you had to have an independent custody officer what well, would be do before we had limits on detention then just threw them in the cell and until we got around to, to looking at them yeah I, I mean i remember being i remember <laughs> bit being, of a change being late turn cid on on a thursday or something and the custody well, wasn't custody sergeant, it was station officer looked after the cells as well as the front office and the communications room in those days. Station officer comes in to see me, or comes in to find someone in the CRD, sees me, he says, Peter, can you do me a favour? I said, yeah, what? He said, we've had this bloke in the cells for three days from that assault the other night. We forgot. The you used to forget you got people No, the they haven't forgotten about him, but no one's had time to deal with him yet. Yeah. You know, have you got a chance to deal with him today? Yeah. And it was for an ABH assault at the Palais. You, yeah, you can see why that had to change, really. Can't Absolutely, you? <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. it was no bad thing, but it was, a, it was, you know, it was a bit stressful living through it. Um, so I'd, I'd voluntarily done interchange that ran to two years, um, and then I went to Islington as a DS, uh, did a couple of years there, and then went to the Flying Squad for five years as a DS and acting DI. Okay, so Flying Squad. Now the Flying Squad. Uh, the Sweeney, the world famous Flying Squad. The, the, the Sweeney television program was that was that set on the Flying Squad? If you're talking about the proper original Flying Squad series with John Thor and John, Dennis Waterman, yeah. it, joining the Flying Squad in 19 about 1990 was like walking in to the Sweeney as portrayed. <laughs> it was recognisably similar. Obviously, times had moved on a little bit. Uh, but it was recognisably similar. The, the, the uh, dynamics between the squad drivers, who were uniform officers, seconded, uh, and the detectives, um, the, I was going to say disregard for the rules, but it's, it's more than that. Um, John Greave, the, the, the DAC, had a, um, had a say in for it. I've forgotten what it is. But it was pushing the limits as far as you could. Lawfully audacious. Lawfully audacious. Lawfully audacious application so, so of the rules. As far, far as you can within the, taking, of the law. Taking the view that no law is passed in this country deliberately to assist the bad guys. So if it's getting in the way and there is literally no way around it, then you probably need to think outside the box a bit because it won't be deliberately trying to stop you catch bad guys. And so lawfully audacious, push it as far as you can. And we only ever find out where the boundaries are if we push it a bit and see what the courts think. And if they say, no, that's fine, push it a bit more. And then you find the boundaries that way. And that's the way the law works in this country. You know, we got on with our so own So what would a typical jobs. day be like then, as you, you as a DS in Flying Squad well, back the, in 1990? The reason the Flying Squad worked well was it, unlike the regional crime squad, it had a crime book. So it had reactive investigations where there were armed robberies committed against their premises, banks, building societies, jewellers, cash in transit, post offices. If there was an armed robbery committed, then it was hours to investigate. 
whereas the regional crime squad only did the proactive investigations, which he's busy doing whatever he's doing, so we'll do surveillance on them and then crash their door in at some point. Trouble with that is, if when you crash the door in, you miss the big prize, all that work putting it together has just gone out the window. So we had the reactive bit, and we did the proactive bit. If we identified who was doing them, and they tended to do them in series, then we'd get behind them and hopefully take them out on the pavement when they were doing one. That was our MO, our way of operating. Uh, We would identify them, we would try and get behind them with an armed surveillance team, and if they did another armed robbery, we would intervene uh, and catch them at it. Dangerous work, though, that is. Hugely dangerous work. Because we we didn't have sort of... uh Bulletproof vest, stab-proof vest back then? Did uh, we, we, we did, but we tended not to wear them. Very heavy. Yeah, they were very we heavy. We always bought the cheap yeah. ones, second-hand from somewhere else, I mean, that were really heavy. <laughs> the, the Germans used to like to, to sell us their second-hand bulletproof vests because yeah, there was, they'd, they'd have the new lightweight, more expensive one. Who can we flog these to? But we, no, but we were armed ourselves in those days. We ran our own operations. Nowadays, you'd have a superintendent that's no experience of doing armed ops themselves, who's doing this strategic command or whatever, um, and second-guessing the officers on the, on the plot. Um, on the plot. On so the what were you armed with? What did, what did uh, we had revolvers. They got Glocks. I left on the Friday, eventually, after five years, and they got Glocks on the Monday morning. I said, oh, that's a shame. And yeah. I knew one of the armed, in, uh, armed department instructors, because he used to go for refreshers every few months. And he said, no, it's no coincidence. He said, you were dangerous enough with a bloody revolver. We weren't going <laughs> to give you a Glock. So, so just to say... You have a lot of training, presumably, with revolvers. They don't just give you one and say, have a play. Yeah, I mean, not by today's standards, certainly not by ARV standards. But we we knew what we we were only going to be doing a fairly fixed set of circumstances. We were either going to be taking them out at an address, so a dig out, uh, which we'd usually use the specialist firearms officers for anyway. Occasionally, if they weren't available, we'd do it ourselves. Um, or we'd do an armed intervention on the streets. And, and the sort of rule of thumb we had at that point was, uh, if, they're, if they've got sort of handguns and shotguns, we'll do it ourselves. If they've got assault rifles and MAC-10s and they are prone to shooting people, then we'll get the armed officers to come with us. Good thinking. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, but even if we did, the DI on the squad would run the armed operation. So a typical day on the squad... Uh, you, you might be bank car. You covered the bank car for a week, which was responding. Blue light, plainclothes vehicles, you see them all the time now, but we were about the only ones in those days. Blues and twos, plainclothes vehicle, um, out to report the armed robbery. So the locals would turn up. So do you mean that's after it's happened? Yeah, at the time it happens, we get called out. Now, there's four officers of the squad, Barnes, Finchley, Walthamstow, rig approaching Walthamstow and Tower Bridge. So obviously we're at a quarter of London each, so it's quite far to get. And how often would a shout come in like that? That's that's an interesting point actually, because it it tells the story about how policing can stop a crime problem. It's a very illustrative point. When I started in 1990, um, we covered the bank car from sort of nine o'clock in the morning until six o'clock at night, bank hours basically, Um, and we covered it Saturday as well. And we would have. At least one call a day. Tell me you had a Granada. They did have a Granada. Oh, great. And they had a <laughs> Sierra, and they had various others. Um, but um, we, we would cover it, and we'd have one call a day at least on average. Sometimes two. Wow. Sometimes three on one occasion. No, no five. Bank job. All bank jobs. All that bank was jobs. all we went to. 
So five in a day on one occasion. Wow. And what was happening was um, that the banks had all gone customer-friendly and they'd taken down all their screens and everything. And so it was a bit of an open season. It went gang-friendly too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And strangely enough, some, some youngsters uh, from inner London that got involved in this and they started swarming over the counter, uh, maybe not even with a gun or a knife. We decided we'd take it on eventually, whether or not they showed or intimated a gun or a knife because it was such a problem. But sheer weight of numbers, they'd swarm over the counter, grab whatever they could. Uh, and on one occasion, you know, they found the safe was open, the big safe was open, and they had 50, 60 grand out of the place. So, so these were happening at that sort of number. Is this when younger people started to do stuff like that? Because I'm assuming up until that point, it's, it was it's mo- the old timers. It was mostly it. career armed robbers. It was mostly career armed robbers. So, so they were um, sort of middle-aged Yeah, mid- middle-aged and, and higher. Um, it was... There was a mid-range who were never particularly organised but were quite persistent, who literally would put a bit of a disguise on, get a gun and go and rob somewhere. Um, and they'd go in prison for five years or seven years or something. They'd come out and ten minutes later they'd be robbing again. So, you know, you start seeing the pictures coming up. Who's just come out? Oh, it'll be him then, will it? And then we get behind him and whatever. And then there were the more dangerous ones um, who were the Yardie-related gangs that usually were doing it just to get money to get into drugs in a big way. Or customs had had a big seizure and they suddenly needed a lot of money to pay somebody off because they've lost all their, their gear. Well, it's uh, not a business plan anyway. Yeah, absolutely. It? And they, I mean, some of these villains, if they'd actually put their efforts into running a proper damn business, they'd all be millionaire entrepreneurs. Um, but they were dangerous because they were unpredictable. They were spur of the moment. We'd be following them around. We'd know what they're planning. And they'd see something on the way there and do it on the spur of the moment. So they were a nightmare. And they'd, they'd fire shots and they, they, they used actual force a lot more than the professional armed robbers did. Who would show the force, would sometimes fire a shot in the air or something, but rarely even do that. And, you know, if someone grappled with them, they certainly wouldn't be shooting them. If, if, if when you're doing the follow bit, the proactive bit, and not waiting for the job to go down, it must be really difficult to make the decision when to go in. It's hugely difficult. You need enough evidence. <clears throat> if, if they all get out of a car yep. outside a bank, you've not got enough evidence to suggest they're going to rob the bank at that stage. But Absolutely once they go not. in with shooters and somebody gets hurt and you've watched them go in, you know, that's a really difficult it, balance, isn't it, it? It is. But the ideal time to take them out, either on the way in or the way out, is as they're half out of the car or half back in it. So they're off balance, physically and psychologically. Um, their gun is in their pocket or half in their pocket. It's not in their hands just pointing at you. So that's the precise moment that you want to hit. And how would that go, roughly? Would that go with vehicles moving in or moving in on foot? Yeah, there's, there's some old footage from a few years ago that there's a... Cla- it, must be the, it must be the flying squad. If it isn't, I'll eat my hat. You'll notice I'm not wearing a hat. But there's some footage doing the rounds on social media of something from 2006, I think. Um, and there's a guy on a motorbike. He's parked his motorbike outside a bank. He's inside, and this is like surveillance-type footage. Um, and he comes, you see him coming out, and they obviously called a hit at that point. Um, and there's another motorbike then comes along. He's slinging one bag 
obviously with the loot over one shoulder, and he's going to give the second bike the other one. And at this point, a Granada or something comes in, takes out both bikes, misses a pedestrian by about six inches, um, and they all pile out and nick them both. That is an absolutely classic pavement job. It must be the squad. The flying squad's not massive. Everybody seems to think it's this huge thing. Each of the four offices, there was about, I don't know, 30 or 40 officers. So maybe 120, 150 across the Met. And that was a team that at the press of a button, the commissioner could have anywhere in London, probably within two hours, and anywhere in the country within travelling time and an hour. They could run, each office could probably run two self-supported armed surveillance operations with no need for any specialist assistance whatsoever. Own surveillance, own shots, own commanders. Now, that's a powerful resource. It is very powerful. How long would would a, a typical surveillance job go on for? Well, it depends. I mean, some you'd get behind and they'd do something quite quickly. Some you'd follow for years, on and off, yeah. and things would go wrong. That must be um, quite frustrating if you want to Oh, hugely frustrating. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they can be really frustrating. I was a patron saint of Lost Causes. I'm infamous for the pizza, so, the pizza so. hut robbers. Um, uh, we didn't deal with pizza. armed robberies of pizza huts. You didn't deal with... We didn't know. That was locals dealt with that. That was a policy decision. That's because yeah. it was pizza, right? <laughs> Not because it was pizza, but it was a policy decision. It wasn't a bank building site, whatever. We dealt with the financial sort of end of things. But anyway, we get called out one day to uh, Hayes in Middlesex. Um, I'm on the bank car. We go out there, and there's one of those shops that's got a convenience shop, like a sweet counter, and then a post office at the back. Everything we're told is it's the post office counter that's been robbed. And our people, before sending us to it, had that conversation because this was obvious, you know, sometimes it was a sweet counter robbed, sometimes it was a post office. No, 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 it's the post office. If it's a post office, it's your job. Yeah, if it's a if sweet, it's a sweet counter, counter, it's local. It would be theirs. <laughs> so we go out there and they've seen us coming and someone has lied about the circumstances to our reserve room. We get out there, we start taking statements and whatever. Locals, as soon as we turn up, quickest handover in the world and they're off like long dogs. And so we start taking statements. It becomes apparent it's the sweet counter that's been robbed. And they've had you. But, <laughs> you but, do this job, mate. Is it? But, yeah. you know, squad pride and all that. We've started, so we'll finish. Um, it was linked with about four other local robberies, at a pizza hut, at a um, Tex-Mex or something like that. Um, I think there was a McDonald's in there as well. Uh, there was another, like, convenience store. So we thought, oh, that'd be easy anyway, because someone local. It was. It was two Irish background hoods that live locally, uh, it eventually turns out. But anyway, we identify them. We get behind them, and they've got this habit of nicking Vauxhall Cavaliers. They worked out how to nick Vauxhall Cavaliers. <laughs> and so we were following them about, and, and usually you'd have a, they'd have a fixed... You know, a typical team of robbers would operate during the day or during the night, one or the other. This lot were just all over the place. And the, the, the surveillance periods got longer and longer. They drove like lunatics. At one point, we're on the North Circular, and they get fed up of the traffic heading towards Neasden through Wembley. And so they go up over the curb, over the pavement, over the grassed area, into the side road, and, and off they go. And the surveillance team are going, what the... Uh, and so, you know, we lose them, we have to go, whatever. Another time they ran out of petrol. Again, in these, I don't know what it was, a bit of the North Circular, but they run out of petrol in their stolen Vauxhall. So they push it around the corner, abandon it, nick another one down the road, and off they go again. Everything that could go wrong with this job went wrong. 
they started robbing, they were going to Broadwater Farm, believe it or not, to buy drugs. At one point, uh, there was two of them there. They dropped off the girlfriend. Buy drugs to sell or buy drugs to use? Buy drugs to use. Um, they dropped the girlfriend off at a connection they had up there. There were now two of them in the stolen Vauxhall Cavalier. They were obviously going to do one. Right, it's on, you know, we'll get them. This is sort of in the early evening. Go to Broadwater Farm, and obviously it's difficult to stay with them there, but we see them park up. One of them gets out. The driver gets out of the car and goes into this address. And we're plotted up watching it, and the other one's sat in the car. And suddenly, round the corner, come a load of cops. What the hell's going on here? And he's sitting there, and you can see what's going through his mind. Oh, what's going on? And they go to the house that the driver's just gone in, and they're executing a firearm search warrant. And he's nothing to do with this address, just a random visitor almost. So he gets scooped up as well, and it's Friday evening, so we end up ringing. The, the guy in the car just gets out and sort of <laughs> wanders off down the road as soon as the coast is clear. We ring up Tottenham and say, who's dealing with this job? Get hold of the people dealing with it. It's a local crime squad. Tell them the story. And they say, oh, do you want us to sort of like... He's obviously nothing to do with this. We found a sawn-off shotgun buried in the back garden. It's obviously nothing to do with him. Do you want us to expedite getting him out? No, we don't. We want him kept in custody for the weekend, so at least we can have a weekend off, <laughs> knowing they're not going to be up to anything. <laughs> and eventually, eventually... And you've got a case, and you've got enough files stacked up to... to, to well, we've got bits and pieces, but... You, you know what the jury's are like. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'd, CCTV wasn't very good in those days. We got bits and pieces, but not very much. Got a few forensics. DNA was in its infancy, so we didn't have any DNA. Um, so we eventually, they eventually do a job in, in Green Lanes, uh, Palmer's Green sort of area. Unfortunately, there'd been a bit of a loss, and then everybody's scrambling together just as they've done it. And it's another pizza place. Don't know what they had about pizza places. One of pizza this time was a local one. But they do this pizza place and they come out and the, the team are just sort of getting there. And so one of the gunships tries to sort of do a bit of tactical so, so, contact. So just to, what was the MO then? Walk in, were they armed? Knives. knives Walk usually. in, pull a knife. Yeah. Sometimes they'd even use the pizza cutters. The one in Palm Green, they just picked up the pizza cutter <laughs> and threatened them with that. Don't even bother bringing your own weapons. Uh, and, and what were they getting? A few hundred quid here, a few hundred quid there. Thousand maybe at maximum, but like I said, dis, disorganised, unpredictable, more dangerous offenders than the professionals yeah. that were getting lots of money. Anyway, they come out, stolen Vauxhall Cavalier as usual. Gunship tries a bit of tactical contact. All it succeeds in doing is spinning it in the opposite direction. It's often running down a side street. Everybody scrambles to try and find it. It's found abandoned at the bottom of this side street, dead end with the North Cirque, where there's a underpass underneath, so we've lost them. So we scoop up all that and say, right, they're going to be back home to this place in Hayes. So we get back to the place in Hayes, plot up all around it, a bit of a loose one. What are we looking for? A Vauxhall Cavalier. It's almost guaranteed. Lo and behold, someone spotting on the North Circular says, I think we've got one coming towards you. It looks like them. Lo and behold, it is. So they circle a bit, see if there's any sort of attention and whatever. Don't see us at all. Park up, go in. So we give them an hour or two to settle. The lights go off. Um, we, we call up uh, SL19, the specialist firearms lot, because at that point it, they were meant to come and do dig-outs for us. They were all tied up with some saga in central London and said, you're going to have to do it yourselves. So we've so, got intel that they've got firearms or not? There'd they, been a firearm at one point, but it was usually knives that were seen and, and, and whatever. Uh, I think a firearm had been seen on one occasion, but not, not, not fired. 
So we do a call-out. So we kick the door in at about 3 o'clock in the morning, call them out. But just going back to the start of the story, we had five a day sometimes, usually you know, five a week. We were busy. Um, by the last five, uh, the, at the end of my five years, so the mid-90s, we had the BBC come to do a fly-on-the-wall thing with us. And we're sitting there all week as the bank car. We didn't have a single job. <laughs> and, you know, armed robbery plummeted. Why did it plummet? A combination between improved crime prevention, because we had a crime prevention, two crime prevention officers that worked closely with the banks and building societies, uh, and we got stuff put in, some of the stuff we still see around, you know, um, uh, the orange smoke and all the rest of it. So all of those things were, were, were done from the crime prevention point of view. But we absolutely focused on collating all the intelligence and information, identifying people and getting them nicked and making sure they stayed nicked. It is robust policing, and, and it works. Robust policing. No more force than you need, but if somebody's being violent and aggressive, enough force to meet that. And, and, and criminals tend to take the least line of resistance. They'll do what's profitable and easiest. So if, if you start to sort of uh, target a particular uh, type of crime, then they, they go and do something else. I mean, they're still doing bad things, a lot of them. So, so it's debatable, you know, how much you're solving. But, but people will do what they get away with. And, and I don't think people fully understand sort of the business brains. When the price of scrap goes up, then scrap thefts go up. Yeah, all your signalling cabling disappears off the railway. Because suddenly it's, it's a profitable Absolutely. and easier way to make money. And if it? it's not profitable, they don't go and do that. They're going to do something else. Lead, lead goes up, all your church roofs start leaking. Okay, so uh, this is our confessional part of the show where we ask for brutal honesty, though no names will be mentioned. Uh, I don't want you to lose your pension over this, so think carefully before you answer. Have you got any confession about your time in police. Have you ever done anything and thought, hmm, any pranks? I say any oh, pranks. Don't start you've played on other coppers is a ridiculous question. Of course you've played pranks. Don't start me on pranks. I mean, back in the day, it was absolutely de rigueur. It was, it was part of your what? start. Yeah. We used to do cycling proficiency tests for new probationers up the <laughs> Shepherd's Bush Road. <laughs> we used to do whistle tests. It, I always f found it a great shame when they put microphones and CCTV in police stations and down the cell block and, and, and we were really in uproar about this and people said, oh, it's because you can't beat up prisoners anymore. No, it's because we can't behave like children anymore. No, absolutely. Because we're being filmed now. Absolutely. <laughs> so we had, we had a, the, 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 the longest running one I remember. There was, a, there was a new probation. who was a bit of an idiot, to be honest. You'd fall for anything. But they did a, a, you could fake a teleprinter message by typing the keys on it as if you were sending it, but you typed as if it was arriving, put it on the teleprinter pad in the comms room. And they faked this teleprinter message, and it was all at the time of, I think it was Chernobyl. Would that have been the 80s? I'd, I'd guess so. I'd but it, was, so. it was a big nuclear thing anyway, and there was talk about fallout clouds coming over. So they got this teleprinter message that we need to have a, um, a foot square section of grass cut out of the biggest open space we've got, which was Raymond's Court Park, uh, and the officer getting it for continuity has got to come in and water it at 9am <laughs> and 5pm. <laughs> Every day until this central unit, imaginary central unit, come and take it away um, for assessment. So this PC gets sent down to Ravenscourt Park. He borrows a spade from the gardeners. 
He takes a measured out foot square of turf, brings it back, very carefully sort of boxes it and whatever. Exhibit level. Puts it, puts it in the backyard, backyard at, at Hammersmith, with sort of surrounded by sort of nuclear hazard tape that someone's nicked from, <laughs> I think they got it from Charing Cross Hospital. So they've got him, everyone's being very helpful. And he then spends the next fortnight coming in, 9 o'clock in the morning and 5 o'clock in the evening, faithfully watering this turf before someone has the heart to tell him it's a wind-up, even on his rest days. And that is a story that will live with him for the rest of his career, won't it? Yeah, if we hadn't told him, he'd probably still be watering it now. Okay. uh, You'd like us, the the police, to concentrate on our own area of business by by what you've told me and, and not do things outside of our uh, traditional policing arena. There's talk of a... Uh, there's been talk for several years, people ask for a Royal Commission to, to really to, to ascertain what the job of a police constable is these days. There's no sign of that on the horizon, but I, but I, un- I understand that you're keen uh, to develop a think tank to take policing forward just tell us very, very succinctly about what there's, your plans are. There's a gap in the market. Nobody seems to be arguing for better policing, a campaign for better policing, a campaign for real policing, if you like. Nobody seems arguing for that. It needs to have some sort of research, analysis, report writing, that sort of thing. I'd love to do it. I can't do it because I've got to earn you know, a living. You've got to earn a living. So I tried. There seemed to be a lot of support for that in, in my Twitter life. Um, I tried to, to launch True Blue Line UK, hashtag True Blue Line UK on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, tried to crowdfund it. Thank you to everybody that, that chipped in, but we made three or four grand over a couple of years. And, you know, if every cop gave a quid, that's 120 grand. One quid per year from each cop, you know, 120 grand. How much, how much good damage could we do to the politicians that are destroying policing? Okay, so if people want to if want to donate to, to your uh, think tank, how, how should they do that? Yeah, it's GoFundMe. It's a GoFundMe, True Blue Line UK. Okay. Uh, or if you find me on Twitter or Facebook and your or Twitter, wherever, uh, it's at Peter underscore Kirkham. Okay. Uh, but again, the hashtag uh, crisis in policing will find me. Okay, this is our time trial. We end with our guest reading out the rights as fast as possible. I'd like to thank my guest this week, Peter Kirkham. This has been a Black Dog television production. I've been Alfie Moore. Thanks for listening. Take it away, Peter. You're not obliged to say anything unless you wish to do so, but it may harm your defence if you don't mention when questioning something you later rely on in court. Will, what time we got? 7.5 seconds. Well done. Thanks, Peter. <laughs>